Well, he blew that. I was going to tell you I wasn't related to him. <laughs> no. Maybe you are a dog. Maybe it could be. Could be. But we are wrong about one thing. I, I did have some bad thoughts when I was young. I wanted to strangle him and him so <laughs> a couple of times. But uh. One day my father drugged I had David on the bed by the throat. I took a bad temper, choking the life out of him. My dad drugged me off of him. He, he changed my life, but he said, son, if you don't control that temper, you're going to end up in the penitentiary. So it was David that got me on the right path. <laughs> okay, now we're ready to talk about love. <laughs> but this is not brotherly love. This is love, agape love. No, I, 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 um, I appreciate the five brothers that came with me from Southside uh, to this. That's not only encouraging to me, but really thrilling. The only bad part of that is, is now I've got to wait at least a month before I can use any of this material at Southside. <laughs> I have several sermons lined up and... I'm using this stuff tomorrow. <laughs> I'm thinking about it. this really good, really good material and really good teaching. I've really uh, very much appreciated everything that's been said, uh, all the ways that I have been encouraged and admonished to be a better man and to act like a man. Uh, what Brother Jerome said, there's a foundation under the foundation. But what comes after the admonitions to watch, to stand firm, to act like men, and to be strong. Read it again. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Does it seem as though that that last one there is sort of maybe out of category a little bit? The idea of being strong, being manly, being brave, being courageous, and then Paul sticks at the end of this, the end of our text, the idea of love. It doesn't really surprise me, and I think one reason is because I've already heard s- several gentlemen today talk about that connection, but I want to go back there and we're going to talk about it again because I think there's real value in understanding the connection between being a man and learning to love. All of the things that go into the responsibilities of manhood are based upon the quality of love it so permeates it's predominant in the scriptures. If we fail to see that connection, or maybe, as I said, if we're sort of surprised that God would put, that Paul would talk to men about love, then maybe it's because we don't really understand what love is, or we don't really fully understand what love is. If there's any temptation to dissect, separate love from manliness, then we really don't understand enough about what love is from the biblical perspective. So the questions we're going to address, what is love? We're going to talk about why is it so crucial to the activities and the responsibilities of manhood? And what does the loving man look like? If you see a man who really loves, what is he doing? What does he look like? What is love? Well, I decided I was going to begin with definitions. I even asked Mike if I could do that. Is it good to start with definitions? He said, yeah, that's pretty good. I think that I like to start there because I think the definitions of words are so important when we're talking particularly about cultural issues because there's so many ways in which the world we live in has changed the meaning of words, particularly as we would understand them from the biblical perspective, that it becomes confusing, sometimes maybe even um, useless to discuss uh, the words to people that come out of the Bible because they're thinking of them in a totally different definition. And I, I, I... I suspect that probably 
most, if not all of us, have heard lessons or maybe studied ourselves the different words that are used in the Bible that are translated into the English word love. Uh, and, and, and we'll mention that, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about phileia and agape uh, and eros. And those words, if that's the way you pronounce them, you, I, I pronounce, if I pronounce Greek words wrong, that immediately tells everybody he's not a scholar, and that's what I want you to know. <laughs> he pronounced it wrong. He doesn't really know. Well, that's okay. Uh, uh, what I want us to focus on, though, in this study, what I think is absolutely crucial, is that whatever you understand and what the Bible teaches us about God's love for us, that's the kind of love he wants me to have for you and for other people. That that's the quality of love that's expressed in that Greek word agape, the idea of selflessness, of uh, of taking my eyes off of myself, putting it on others, and the focus of what I would do, the motivation for what I do, is never inward, it's always towards someone else. Even to the point of, as already being, I think, so well expressed, the idea of saying things and doing things that are difficult, that are hard, that bring about people, get people upset with us, that make them angry with us, that are rebukeful. All of those things are not separate from, nor in any way divorced from, the things that we say out of love. In fact, they're intricately connected with what love is all about. But God in love, that's so crucial, isn't it? That's why you see John the Apostle would tell us on a couple of occasions, God is love. It's more than just understanding an attribute of God. It's understanding this aspect here that the character and the working of God is what he expects of us uh, and what he wants us to be. But we use the word love in so many different ways, don't we? And again, that becomes confusing. If I, if I, if I, if I tell you I love the Bengals, <laughs> or I tell you that I love my Cocker Spaniel, or I tell you that I love, uh, you know, potato salad or cornbread and milk, and then I tell you I love my wife, I don't mean the same thing by that, do I? Those are different, that's a w- word used in different connotation, the idea here. And so we have to recognize that when the Bible uses the term love, when Paul says, let everything de- be done in love, but he's not talking about some abstract, you see, undefinable type of emotion or feeling. He's not letting you and I decide what that means. He is show, he, Paul is able to say that because there was already clearly, definitively in biblical text, the understanding of what love is by looking at the character of God, how God has acted toward us, and what we understand about God. And when, So that when the command says, let all things be done in love, it's almost like the apostle assumes we know what that means, doesn't it? that he understands how we would go about obeying that. So the idea of agape love, self-surrender, I think is it, certainly that's the word here that's used, that that's at the center of our understanding of what the command is. Agape, in this aspect of, I think, um, understanding what agape love is in the context of commands, is always a term that has to do with doing what's best for the other person. Um, the Word Study Dictionary of the New Testament says that agape means affectionate regard, goodwill, benevolence. But there goes on to say, with reference to God's love, it is God's willful direction toward man. It involves God doing what he knows is best for man, not necessarily what man desires. So when God acts out of love, he's acting out of what's best for us. That's why in the Bible, there are... Passages that rebuke us. There are passages that say things about us we maybe not only don't believe, but we don't want to believe. And there are th- there the where God tells us to do hard things and make hard choices because that's what's best for us. It's why the Bible can tell us that God would allow us to suffer. 
and bad things to happen to us because God loves us. Why he would allow us to be disciplined even by his word because God loves us. So the willful seeking of what is best for another in all circumstances is what we're going to use definitively when we talk about love in this study. Uh, you know, you have a cell phone. The, the, um, the development of cell phones, personal phones, is an interesting thing because it used to be, you know, it was this big thing you carried and maybe in the satchel or whatever, and very few people had it. But then now everybody here has a cell phone, right? And you probably have a cell phone that can do things that, uh, that you never imagined you could do with anything you carry in your pocket. But one of the interesting developments of a cell phone, I thought, I think, is the fact that it has two cameras. Some of them have three or four. But nearly every cell phone now, unless you're still using one of them flip things, is it has a camera that looks this way and has a camera that looks this way. Now, why would you need... I can understand having a camera. I love to take pictures. But why do I need a camera with a, a, a phone with a camera that faces this way? So I can take what? <laughs> I can take selfies, right? I mean, the idea here that I, that, that I, have, a, I have a camera here that has capacity and ultimately feeds the need for me to take a picture of myself doing something. So I I use that illustration because I think what love demands of us is that we only have one camera and it phases outward. That our life is not to be geared by anything that looks at us as the primary target. That we're Looking out at the world, we're looking at others, we're looking at our wives, our families, our children, our fellow man, we're looking even at those who are lost and, and sinners in the world, we're looking at everyone else through the lens of love, because we're looking that direction, and not towards ourselves. When I turn that, push that button and turn the camera back on myself, that's when, you see, I got problems. That's when I stop doing things out of love, and I start doing things in another way. So... Uh, so when we talk about the idea of doing all things in love, we recognize that Paul is putting a pretty good challenge upon us that we would not just be loving once in a while, but that everything that we would do would be motivated by love. Now what that tells me is that, if I understand that correctly, that love's pretty important. If the apostle can say, everything you do needs this, then that's pretty important. Um, so biblical love is important. How are we going to see that and establish that in the rest of Scripture? We'll turn to Romans 13. I think certainly we recognize that Paul says it uh, in the implications of the passage we're studying here, but there are other places in Scripture where this really becomes clear, is that love is primary, it's central, it's fundamental, and it is to be a part of everything that we do. Uh, it is imperative in that regard. Um, you pay your debts. I think we, if we were going to say, okay, what does a, what does a man of integrity do? What does a man of honesty do? What does a real man do? He pays his debts. What do we call a guy who doesn't pay his debts? He's a deadbeat, right? We don't, we, we would immediately say, okay, you're going to be a good father. You got to pay your debts. You got to make sure that you don't leave people hanging. If you owe them something, then you ought to pay that. We expect that of others. And as men, we shall expect that of ourselves as well. After making it clear in Romans chapter 13 that Every Christian is subject to the civil authorities, the governing authorities, and we are not to seek personal revenge for ourselves, we're to leave that to vengeance up to God and to those whom he's established, you see, as his ministers. Paul makes this demand in Romans chapter 13, verse 7, pay all that is, is, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. 
there's several sermons, isn't there, in that. The idea that respect and honor is what you owe, and you owe it to all of, in all of these different areas of life, that you should pay your taxes, that you should honor those who, are, who, you, who, de- who deserve to be honored, and you should make sure that you don't owe these things, in the sense that he says in verse 8, owe no one anything. I remember several years ago I had opportunity to go and, uh, and uh, talk to some inmates, teach some inmates in a in local correction institution by us, and, and so we would go in and we'd sit down and have Bible class, and after the Bible class we'd break up into sessions, and, they'd, uh, and these gentlemen then would ask us questions. Uh, and one of the questions, one of the, one of the most, I think the first time I was there, one of the first questions was this fellow got out of his New Testament, and he pulled to this passage, and he said, owe no man anything. He says, now tell me why. It's okay to have a credit card or it's okay to buy, to owe money for a bank loan when God says, owe no man anything. Um, I scratched my head a little bit about that. I was, I was ready for a lot of questions about baptism and the Lord's Supper and instrumental <laughs> music, but I wasn't ready for, for Romans 8, Romans 13, 8. But I look at this and I recognize that that is a good question and one I think that, that drives the meaning of the passage to understand that Paul is saying there's something here about owing that's vital, about not owing that's vital. Owe no one anything. Does not forbid taking out a loan or using a credit card, I believe, because there are other passages in Scripture where God allowed the Jews to borrow money, both to lend and to borrow. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 5 told his disciples not to turn away anybody who would come and ask to lend somebody something. But there is an exception to what we should owe one another, he says, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, I want to explore that thought. Don't owe anybody anything. Pay your debts. If you owe something, pay it back. Except what? Except for love. Owe no man anything except love. Why? Because you can never pay that debt off. You are constantly under the obligation to love another person. So don't go around making debts for yourself except for the debt of love and recognize that you must owe that. Why? For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. So love to another is a debt that you always owe. That would be my first inclination to talk about the importance and the imperatives of love is particularly in talking to us as men, leaders of our families, those who are to provide is that just like paying your bills is important to your responsibility, so paying the debt you owe of love to everybody is central to your responsibility and to my responsibility as being a man. i got to pay that. The NIV says this, Let no debt remain outstanding except a continuing debt to love one another, for he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. You always owe it to love somebody else. There's no excuse, there's no reason, there's no extenuating circumstance where you can do something towards another person that is not the loving thing to do because you owe that to them, whoever they are. Whether they're close to you, whether they're family, owe no man anything, but every man you owe love. Makes it important to know what love is, isn't it? And how important, how I am to act in love because I owe it to everybody to love them. Now, Paul gives another reason here. He says love fulfills the law. In fact, twice in Romans 13 and 8 through 10, Paul says love fulfills the law. 
I'm not sure I know all that what that means. I I believe that what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22 plays into this, or it may be that Paul's remembering that very uh, that very text when he makes this statement about love. But in Matthew chapter 22 verse 36. They come to Jesus, they say, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And what does he say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment, and the second to it, like, is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Again, I would have us notice that the idea of love contained in both the, law, the command to love God with everything that we have and to love one another is given an all-inclusive in, in, parameter. It's not love here, love a little bit here, love a little bit there. What Jesus said about love in terms of the commandments is that the command to love is not only at the top of the list, but all the other laws of the law and commandment depend upon the, 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 the command to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what I believe that means, at least part of what I believe that means, is that being obedient to the law of God depends upon the exercise of love, both toward God and toward my neighbor. That commandments are not just directives given to be written out, voiced out, and, and lockstep put them into motion. It's not going through certain functional functionalities that, that ultimately defines obedience. Obedience has connected with it this aspect of a desire to serve God because you love him and to serve other people because you love them. And so being obedient to the law depends upon the exercise of love and the understanding of what love is. Is it possible that all the commandments of God could be reduced to a single concept? Well, again, I'm not sure that's necessarily what Jesus is trying to get across to us here, or is getting across to us here. It's certainly not true in the sense that I can just say, well, all that God cares about is if I love, so I love everybody, so I'm good. And there are a lot of people in religion that take that approach. When you ask them, what does God want? Oh, he just wants me to love my neighbor. He just wants me to be a loving person, to be kind. As long as I do that, it doesn't make a difference about all that other stuff, as they might refer to it. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying individual commandments are not important or they're not a lot of other things I can give my, that I need to give my attention to. I can't be successful in being obedient to God unless I'm, you see, comprehensively obedient to his word. But I do believe that there is a sense in which love, that the commandments of God can be narrowed down or boiled down to the concept of love in this sense that if I truly love God, and I truly love others, love God, love my neighbor, then I will not disobey the laws of God. So Jesus says, if you love me, you what? Keep my commandments. Now, that passage obviously connects together the aspect of didactic commandments with what love is. But it even goes further than that, I believe, in the sense that you cannot love God and you cannot love your brother without obeying the commandments of God. Or the recent verse of that, if you don't love God, and if you don't love your brother, you will not obey the commandments of God. Someone has said that the idea here that the Christian life can be lived successfully by doing this. By loving God and then doing what you want. Uh, that's pretty, you, almost, you, you read that and you think, nah, it's not, it can't be right. 
love God and do what you want. But think about that for a moment. If you really loved God, what would you do? You would do what God wanted. If you really loved your brother, what would you do? You would do what was best for him. So you would be in a constant mode, if you learn to love, constant mode of obeying God and doing what's best for your brother. So the idea that obedience could be boiled down to a single concept is pretty impressive. And certainly it tells us here what Paul's addressing in this very passage we're teaching. And that is, you must practice love in everything that you do. It is the debt you owe. And in a sense, it's the only debt that you should owe is to love one another and to love God. There are a couple of passages other than that this passage that points out the cruciality of love, and I think we're familiar with these. John 13, verse 34. How will people know that we are the disciples of Jesus? By whether or not you love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What are we going to do to make people believe that we are God's children? Well, there's a whole list of things that, could put, that we could list in the aspect of being a proper display of God's character and the activities that reflect our relationship and discipleship to God. We can't say we're disciples of Jesus. We don't help other people. We can't say we're disciples of Jesus. We don't teach the truth. We need to go and worship him. We need to display all of these elements. And yet Jesus boils it down to his disciples under the single concept of loving each other. I believe at least one thing Jesus is telling me there is you can't overlook this. You can't dismiss this. This is absolutely crucial. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord God has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We talked about some of those things that we have already studied about meekness, about the aspect of patience and bearing one another. And at the end of that list of things that are so important to the character of the chosen ones of God, he says, above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So that love is, is depicted by the apostle here as the, uh, as the glue that holds all of these other things together so that they can be viewed and understood as one character of the Christian. And we'll talk about why, how that comes about. But what I, would, what I would suggest to you in the context of that, at least what comes to my mind in terms of application, is that right theology is no substitute for love. Being a part of the right religious institution is no substitute for love. Religious activity is no substitute for love. Nothing substitutes love because nothing is valuable without it. There is no generic ingredient. There is no thing I can put in the recipe that will do the same thing as love. That's why the apostle says that we should love without hypocrisy. Unfeigned love, some translations say. The idea that you can't fake this. You have to actually do those things that is best for the other person and you should not pursue anything other than unfeigned love because that's the only thing that binds all this other stuff together. And, and as the brother mentioned before, we, we recognize hypocrisy, don't we? We see the heinousness of someone who pretends to be something that he's not, who acts like, well, this is what I'm doing when really they're not doing it or acts like I'm doing this for you when they're really doing it for somebody else. So that's, it's crucial that if we're going to present ourselves as God's true people, 
that we understand not only the quality of love, but how absolutely, you see, uh, unsubstitutable <laughs> anything else is for love. 1 Corinthians 13. We looked at this passage earlier in our study. I want to go back there. We're not going to spend a lot of time, and you'll notice maybe on the sheet that on the back side it says an additional exercise. That was the first sheet of my lesson because I thought I'm going to go 1 Corinthians 13, talk about all those qualities, and we'll talk about what love is. That's a good study. It might be better to study it to somebody else but me, but that's a, that's a crucial study of what love is, is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So I'm going to leave that for you in the idea that what Paul says in the negative context of what love does not do is a very powerful picture of how love is acted out, be acted out in our lives. So you can look at that exercise. But I want to start in talking about the cruciality love, the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, if we read through the whole discourse about love, I'll say this up front. I think it's, it really is a mistaken and somewhat shallow view to sort of rip these passages about love out of, the past, out of the context and put them on a piece of paper and just study them. They need to be studied in the context of Paul's discussion about spiritual gifts, about the problems that existed at Corinth and things that he's addressing about division. There are a lot of other things about why love is discussed here that are part of that conversation, a necessary conversation. But I also want us to notice that he focuses in the description about love here on things that are negative, about the negative elements of it. Notice how many times have not is used in these first three verses. And then he goes on to discuss love. He says, love doesn't do this. It's not boastful. Doesn't en- it's not envy. doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. So there's a lot of negative here where the apostle is pointing out to us what love does not do. And that's helpful to us because not only because we can understand what love is, because we can then identify if you're doing that, you're not loving. If this is what I got in my heart, then that's not love. If this is why I'm doing something, then I'm not doing it out of love. So Paul's putting it in the negative context because sometimes that makes it easy for us to apply it. I believe that at least one that's one benefit of it. But notice what he says here. Paul sort of utilizes the limits of imagination here. Let's imagine a guy, and this guy doesn't exist, but let's imagine a guy who can speak with the tongues of men and angels. He says what God says. And he says that all the time. Here's a fella who's, you see, an individual who has prophetic powers, can tell the future, can, can make known spiritual knowledge. He understands all mysteries. There's nothing unknown to him. There's nothing you see that he doesn't fully comprehend. He has all faith. He has absolute confidence in God. He never wavers in his faith, even to the point that he can, he can gain great advantages, as the passage says, move mountains. And here's a guy that on top of all of that spiritual power and that spiritual knowledge and all of that faith is a benevolent person. He'll give it all away to help the poor. He is he is a philanthropist to the ultimate degree, even to the point of dying for his cause. Let his body be burned. You got that guy in your mind? But he doesn't love anybody. He doesn't love God. All that he does is without love. Where is that guy? Jesus says, you see, that he has nothing. 
He produces nothing. He gains nothing. He is nothing. That's, I'm glad Paul used his imagination there, right? Because I might be willing to excuse myself somewhere along the line of saying, well, you know, love's not that crucial here. It's more important that I do this. This is really, this is really the way this ought to be handled. That Paul would tell me, this is the fellow you need to look at because he's far below what you are. And if he doesn't have love, there's nothing that he does that's worth anything. Gentlemen, we can be the most successful breadwinners. We can educate our children in the best schools. We can prepare for their financial future and our financial future. We can give back to our communities. We can help the poor. We can learn to lead singing. We can preach a lesson. We can publish a book. We can be asked to speak at the lectures. (laughs) We can do all of these things and prepare ourselves for all of those things. But if you don't love your wife, it means nothing. If you don't love your children, it's a waste of time. If you can't love the person, your neighbor that's lost in such a way that you would do the best thing for him, then it's a waste of time. I think that's a powerful lesson for us as men. Because you see, those other things can be very well focused in our lives. Responsibilities that we have to make a living, to provide, to be the individual you see that makes sure my kids are educated right and that they're going to have everything that they need. But it's easy for us to overlook the crucial element of love. What does the loving man look like? I say, well, I know I need it. because Obviously, that's what the scripture says. You need it. Well, what does it look like in the practical element of living the Christian life? I'm going to suggest a couple of things. And this is by no way an exhaustive look at what it means to love as a man. We're just going to suggest some few things. And I know that you can make better applications of these things than I can. But one is, the loving man always tells the truth. One thing that I think we need to notice in Scripture is the connection between love and truth. They're not just two words that appear together in verses together, though they do often appear together in verses, but the idea that telling the truth is an attribute of love towards another person. Why does God always tell you the truth? You know, he always does, right? He always tells us the truth. He tells us how bad we are in Scripture. He tells us, you see, uh, how we're unworthy. He tells us about things that we don't really want to hear about ourselves. He tells us to do things we don't really want to do and make changes we don't. Why does he do all of that? Because he loves you. And that's the revelation of God is based upon the character of God, and that is that he loves us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul speaks about his commitment to the church at Corinth. He had suffered in behalf of them. As a servant of Christ, servant of God, he calls himself in verse 4. He says he had served them in afflictions, hardships, calamities. Verse 5, he says, beatings, imprisonment, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger by purity and knowledge and patience, kindness, Holy Spirit, genuine love. And then the next phrase he says, by truthful speech and the power of God. So I believe what Paul's saying here is that You see, these are the things that I owed my commitment to you and to God. I owed the ability and the willingness to suffer and ultimately, you see, to be kind and to express genuine love and to always tell you the truth, to speak truth. He mentions unfeigned love, one translation says about the idea of genuine, in connection with truthful speech. 
that I think uh, that connection there um, is important to see. At least it's, it says something to me, and that is that if I really have genuine love for somebody, I can't fake that by telling them something that's not true. And that's exactly what many times the world would have us do. If you love somebody, then you don't tell them that you don't like that. You don't tell them that that's not the right thing to do or that they need to go in another direction. You lie to them or you, see, you, you, you say something that will be more appealing to them and then you tell them that, well, I didn't say that because I really love you. <laughs> I didn't tell you the truth because I really love you. Folks, that's soap opera stuff, right? That's not reality. Individuals that love somebody always tell them the truth. The idea here also is that the truth is connected with love because love is the motivation for speaking the truth to one another. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, speak the truth in love. In the context of that passage, if I understand it right, is the aspect of unity and the pursuing the endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. How is that accomplished? Well, love is behind that. If we don't love one another, we're not going to care about whether or not we're together and we're unified, but we have to speak the truth in love. And we've talked a little bit about that already. It it involves the idea of having the courageous thing, the courage to say the right thing and not fudge on the truth, so to speak, or compromise. Secondly, the loving man ministers to the needs of others. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the, and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. A labor of love is a labor of service. It's seen in a verbal sense in what we do for another person. So to say that you love somebody and then not serve them, serve them in a consistent basis, is nonsensical. In Galatians chapter 5 verse 13 For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Notice again, the apostle plugs in Jesus' comprehensive statement about love, makes it connect to the aspect of serving another person. If you love a person, then you serve them. I can't help but think about about John chapter 13. There's a whole lesson right here from John chapter 13, isn't there? The chapter starts out saying Jesus knew what was coming and he loved them to the end. And then what happens next? He gets down on the floor and he washes his disciples' feet. The fact that Jesus knew what everything was about and that he absolutely loved them to the uttermost was the natural introduction to this grand act of washing the disciples' feet. There's any place we don't expect to see the Son of God that's washing Judas' feet. But there he is, washing Judas' feet. Why? Well, the text tells us because he loved him. And the loving man, even the Son of Man, the loving man, serves. First John chapter 3, verse 16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and see his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love Abide in him. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, let me stop here and make a... (laughs) Make an observation. Many of you know that we were devastated 
in Fort Myers, Lee County with a hurricane a few weeks ago, a few months ago. Things like that you're not absolutely prepared for in any way, not only as a community, but certainly not an understanding how it's going to impact the Lord's church. What kind of effect will something like this have on God's people? God knows how to work stuff out. Let me tell you, he does. It was within hours after what happened with Ian had gone out to the world that I was getting phone calls from people, from brethren all over the country, all over this nation saying, how can we help? How can we help? We're ready to send. Now, of course, if you, and I know many of you in this room made those calls, and I probably told you, I don't know yet, because it took a long time or a while for us to be able to access what the needs were. But I never, I never, and I will never get over the feeling. Say love is a feeling, not completely, but yeah, it is. The feeling that people love us. They love us. They don't know us. They don't know who we are. They don't know names. They don't know circumstances. But I know they love me because they were willing to serve their brother and give. And they give. So much so that within a few months we were writing saying, don't send anymore. You know, like Moses in the tabernacle. <laughs> People were giving fight. He said, oh, wait a minute. You can't give it. we got to stop. That's where myself and the other elder were at Southside saying, no, folks, you've got to stop. Because if I hadn't stopped, it would just kept coming in. Because why? Because people wanted to serve God, and they loved God, and they loved us. Now, I say that to understand that, for, for me to understand that God... That didn't come magically. The reason that happened is because God has taught his people all along for centuries and over vast distances of land what it means to love. And that that spiritual truth is embedded in the hearts of men and women and women all over the world. We may think we live in a bad world, and we do. But let me tell you what, folks. The love of God exists in the hearts of people all over this world because God's put it there. And they understand what a privilege it is to be children of God, that he's poured out his love through his spirit into the hearts of people. And that's not just some mystical thinking, because there are times in life when that becomes concretely evident when one person serves another. And I think Jesus is to be praised for that. Thirdly, the loving man forgives. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. I think this is one of those that challenges me. We need to work on this a little bit uh, because sometimes forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness is one of those things that sometimes we struggle with. But it, it may be that some of that is because of the, the cultural perception that forgiving is weakness and men want to be anything but weak. And if you forgive somebody, you're sort of letting them off the hook. Uh, or the idea here that that's really not what really shows manliness. And there are other qualities we could maybe throw in that bucket, at least from the cultural perception, about empathy and compassion. 
I think that those qualities are as masculine as any quality you could possibly think of in all of the scriptures. The idea of love, forgiveness, empathy, compassion, understanding those who are not like us. The reason I would say that is not only because the Bible attaches those, te- those, te- those particular qualities to the responsibility of a man, but because they are so difficult sometimes. And so we have to be careful about that. And it challenges me to recognize that the loving man forgives. As God, Christ has forgiven him, he forgives. The loving man, fourthly, stays. He stays. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7. The last passage in that quality list. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I believe what those things and there were the way of looking at all of those different terms and seeing connotations that are there in teachings, but I think all of these things put together, what they say to me is that love doesn't give up. Love doesn't abandon. Love doesn't quit on people. The man who loves his family doesn't abandon his family. The, the man who loves his children doesn't give up on his children. He may see their obstacles before them. He may feel as though those obstacles seemingly are insurmountable. He may not know how he's going to possibly be able to get through all of this, but if he loves his family, he doesn't leave them. He stays with them. Because love bears all things. He gives them the resources and the opportunity to grow and to flourish, to be spiritually better than they were before. And so that's that's how love becomes so, I think, able to be applied or applicable to so many different areas of life is the idea that love is love expressed is giving someone else the opportunity and the resources to grow beyond where they are now. That's the way you approach your child, right? Is a five-year-old, is he just the way you want him? You don't need anything else out of this five-year-old except what he does now? Or do you want him to grow? Do you want him to learn different things and become better on down the road? Well, sure you do, because you love him, you want him to grow. So your responsibility and my responsibility as a father is to make those resources available, the things that God provides even for me physically, to make sure that this child has the opportunity to grow. And that's exactly what God has done for us. He loves us, therefore He wants us to grow. So He provides those things and plants within our heart a word that will save us and build us up and commend us to God. So the father does that. The man of the family does that. He stays with his children. He stays with his children in Bible classes and worship services and visiting the sick and helping others. You know, one thing that has always, always been thrilling for me to see is not just adults doing good things, but adults with their children with them doing good things. Where dad's taking you know, the child with him to take supper to somebody else. Or he's taking his kids with him when he goes to do something at the church building to fix something up. Something as insignificant as putting up a gutter or you see cleaning the building. His kid's right beside him. And I think those type of opportunities you see are things that help us understand and recognize what it means to be like God. Or at least their reflection of what it means by life. Because God, you see, wants me to grow. And he lays out the resources by which I can grow so that I might be a partaker of divine nature. I might be like Him. One of the most common attributes of God mentioned in the Old Testament. And how much time do I have? I'm not, um, and I'm not, again, I'm not a scholar of anything, but certainly... Not of Hebrew language, but one of the most common attributes of God mentioned in the Old Testament is the word K. 
Chesed. Am I saying that right? It's a word that's translated sometimes loving kindness or mercy. The ESV has an interesting translation of that word in almost every time it appears. It translates that word as steadfast love. What's the character of God that would cause him to provide for the forgiveness of your sins, to send Jesus to the cross, to redeem his nation, to bring people up out of exile? Over and over again, the Old Testament talks about God as having steadfast love. The 136th Psalm, that that phrase is used 26 times, and it says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. God's love stays. God's love is secure. God's love doesn't have to be doubted about or wondered about. And if in your personal relationships with one another, if your wife or your children are wondering about whether or not you love them, if your brothers are wondering whether or not you love them, then something's wrong. There needs to be something done in your life to change that because that's not the love of God. The love of God is steadfast. And then lastly, the love of man gives. Here's a, there's not a single word in Scripture, I believe, that's more closely related to the word love, agape love, than the verb giving or gave. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verse 16, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and the God of our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. And then that passage that certainly we need to talk about in the, in, in a meeting of men about man responsibilities. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself. If God's going to talk to us as husbands to tell us how you must love your wife and what that means, what's the first verb that he uses to tell us? You have to give. Because that's how God loves. He gives. He gives, you see, without reservation. He gives, you see, in absolute mercy. He provides. So those, there is no claim to love without a willingness to give. You see, if you're if you're saying to your family, this is mine, you can have that. If you're saying, okay, you got your money, I got my money, I'm going to keep mine, you have yours. You need to reevaluate that. Because it's hard under that environment of have, holding something back that you're unwilling to give to the people in your life and then turning around and saying, I love you. If you're not willing to give, then you cannot claim love. Not the love of God. Because God gives. Now, John 15, verse 23, verse 12. This is, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. What do we do for ourselves in an exercise such as this? What a wonderful privilege this is. You sit down and talk about responsibilities of human men, of ourselves, particularly in the context of love. Well, one thing it's done for me is to recognize that 
The activity of love is nothing like the superficial concept of love as an unbidden emotion that the world presses upon me. You know, the other brother said we should not take any advice from the world. That's underscored right here. Don't let the world define what love is for you. Listen to what God has to say. So, if you're up to it, take home the exercise, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You can write my sermon better than I would have written it for myself uh, if I had pursued that course. I'm, I'm really thankful for the opportunity to close this up. Uh, not only because I get to see all your smiling faces when we dismiss, but <laughs> but because I've been able to sit and listen to everything that led up to what has been focused on more on my mind as I prepared this. Because everything that's been said today has led my thoughts directly to where I was in Scripture in the last phrase, let all things be done in love. And maybe it has you too, because I believe that's where the Apostle wanted us to end up. He wanted us to end up with our minds focused on Love. Thank you.